Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Really had a great hour with Beverly Canaris. Enjoyed that very much. Dr. Alex McFarland is going to be my next guest. He's already on the studio line, so the faster we get to him, the better. And then Dr. Ann Bradley will be joining me in the second part of the hour. So I got to say, it's another uh, another great hour coming up. So you know Alex, and he's uh, a regular contributor. You go to alexmcfarland.com to learn more about uh, him and uh, look at all of his books. I think it's up to 20 now that he's written. And he's a super thinker and a friend of the show and just an all-around great guy. So let me take 60 seconds and bring him on. Hi, I'm Jim Daly with Focus on the Family. When a health crisis strikes, it can be a crazy time for parents. But in the middle of your busyness, it's easy to forget to take care of yourself. Our lives can be like pressure cookers, and we can only handle so much stress. Sooner or later, we need to slow down. Make time for a good book, a bubble bath, or find another way to just be still. Explore new ways to refresh your mind, body, and soul. And together, we'll get through this. God is waiting to give you wisdom. You just have to ask. So you say, God, I need wisdom. And I pray and I ask. Then I read the Bible. I read this book. And then I wait. And at the right time, maybe not immediately, at the right time, God will put that idea in my mind. And he'll go, wow, that's an inspiration. That's what I need to do. Fuel for a deep and active faith. Faith Radio. Welcome to the show. This is Hour 2. I'm glad you're with me today. Alex McFarlane is my guest. His, uh, one of his mottos is evangelizing the lost and equipping the saved. That's what we do around here at Faith Radio. That's why you're the perfect guest to come on today. Alex, how are you? I'm doing great, Bill. It's so good to hear your voice. Yeah, no kidding. I'm, I always think of you and your busy travel schedule and how much you labor to serve the Lord, and you're on an airplane every weekend, and how your life has really been uprooted. Well, yeah, you know, the pandemic thing has just changed so many people's lives, my own included. But, uh, Bill, let me give a little bit of testimony here. I I just give God the glory. Um, The spring and the fall are busy times for any traveling evangelist or speaker. And for 22 years, the good Lord has allowed me to travel all over North America. In fact, uh, about 12 months ago, I was in Minneapolis and St. Paul to speak at a conference so, you know, March, April, May, June, all of those things have evaporated off my calendar. In fact, I don't have another really live public event on the books until July 27th. I'm supposed to be at the Billy Graham Training Center. It's called The Cove in Asheville to do Daniel and Revelation. Uh, but listen to this. This is amazing. Um, our board met, and we said, okay, look, all of the, the spring tour schedule is off 
So what are we going to do? Well, we begin to do videos on Facebook that we do Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I did one this morning. Uh, by the way, the Facebook is Rev Alex McFarland, R-E-V, Rev Alex McFarland. Uh, Bill, here's the great testimony. We have been, for the last five, six weeks, averaging uh, hundreds of emails, I mean, from people, everybody saying, gee, Alex, I'm praying for you. I was looking forward to seeing you when you came to Tyler, Texas, you know, but of people that are saying, um, Alex, how do I get right with God? Mm. I'm not sure I'm saved, but I want to be sure. What do I do? Um, you know, do you think this is the end of time? Is Jesus coming back? Are we ever going to get back to normal? Good, solid ministry online with people. We're averaging 91 people a day. Now, in a month, that's, you know, that's nearly 3,000 people that we're able to either lead them in a prayer, give them a book, find out that they either have come to the Lord or come back to the Lord. My point being, Bill, uh, yeah, it's it's been a major change for me to not, you know, I was speaking three, four, five places a week, and now I'm like not speaking anywhere, but yet I might not be on the road, but I am online. And I am on air, and we're actually potentially ministering to more people than we ever have. That's just phenomenal, Alex. I, I just love that. And you're, <laughs> you are uh, reaching so many people. And I'm fascinated to hear some of the questions that they're coming to you with. I mean, they're, they're seeking answers, which is perfect. I mean, oftentimes pandemics can really work to the advantage of evangelism, can it? Well, it really can. I mean, if you look at the history of our country— from colonial times, the 19th century, the 20th century, um, some of the, the most dire situations were times when revival came about and the Spirit of God was able to break into people's lives. Um, you know, I, I well remember my grandparents telling me about the time of the Great Depression and people going to church and just, you know, evangelists would come and people were desperate. I, I've heard a lot of stories from people about the World War II era, and I remember folks just, you know, 19 years ago um, after 9-11, how people were, you know, filling the churches for the first few weeks after 9-11. My point uh, in this, and Bill, I'd love your thoughts on this, uh, right now the whole wide world is, is at a standstill, and some people are saying, hey, go back to work, open up the stores, open up the businesses. Others are saying no. Um, the UN and the World Health Organization is saying, you know, this is the new normal and the COVID will be around for two years and then it'll come back in waves. I, I, I will say this. It, it concerns me that some that uh, lean left politically might seize this opportunity to permanently suspend our constitutionally protected civil rights. And, and I, I fear that many would see this as their opportunity to begin to usher in socialism and communism, saying, you know, well, people can't work. You know, we've got to institute a guaranteed national wage. So, folks, I would encourage you to pray and remember that we are not a socialist utopia. We're a representative Judeo-Christian republic. Um, but my, you know, Bill, maybe, maybe this being turned upside down will cause us to 
really turn to God and experience a true move of the Holy Spirit. Well, it encouraged me to think that, Alex, because your numbers are way up, and at Faith Radio, our our listenership is way up. So I'm... Amen. Yeah, no, I'm delighted that well, pe- people are tuning in uh, and seeking answers and looking for hope. Well, and, and let me just say this, folks. Case in point, this is why we need Christian radio. And, and I know there are probably some listeners that support financially, and uh, I know, you know, my wife and I want to make a gift to Faith Radio, uh, and we're going to do that. But this is why I, I just think about the blessing that, you know, life is rolling right along, and suddenly there's this pandemic, and Faith Radio is there, and people can't get out and go to church, and some people are spiritually hungry who didn't go to church anyway, and now there's a voice of the gospel that people can hear on the radio and online. And I just want to say, Bill, to you and all of your colleagues, thanks for being there all these years, and thanks for being here right now to be the voice of Jesus to hungry listeners. That was a beautiful statement you just made, Alex, and I will cherish that, and and I will say thank you, and I believe it to be true. I I love that there are so many people coming to Faith Radio saying, "Uh uh-oh, I've got questions, and i got to figure out um, this whole faith thing. And I know that there is a lot of people that are that are feeling um, a new sense of of desperation, which is not a bad thing to feel. I mean, you have to understand you're a yeah. sinner in need of a savior, and sometimes you need to have some pressure put on you to understand uh, who you are and who God is. Yeah, exactly. Um, Corey Ten Boom, that um, very famously was. Um, memorialized in The Hiding Place, the book and the movie about the Holocaust. But Corey Ten Boom, she said, when life knocks you to your knees, well, that's a pretty good place to start praying. <laughs> that's such a smart, smart, cool saying. I love that. Yeah. and uh, but, but you know what? I would say to everybody listening, and it, it just might be somebody came upon this, this show just, you know, by happenstance maybe, although it's really God's providence. Um, the, the most important thing in life, is to know that you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus and that when you leave this world, you are ready to meet God. And Jesus will make you ready. Jesus will forgive your sins and he'll put your name in the Lamb's book of life. And, you know, Bill, I suppose in a perfect world, we would all just one day come aware and we would turn to God. But sometimes it does take the pressure of life. Um, How sad um, the the Surgeon General of Germany a few weeks ago took his own life, hmm. and this, apparently the stress of the pandemic. Oh. And then just last week, a respected doctor in New York, uh, a, a female, very respected doctor, apparently just crumbled under all of this pressure and took her life. Friend, the hard times of life, um, it's no time to do yourself harm or to become hopeless, but it is a time to turn to God, who not only will save our soul— that he will walk with us and carry us even through the pressures of each and every day. So build all your wonderful listeners, I would say, uh, know Christ and and make him known as well. Mm-hmm. Dr. Alex McFarland is my guest. After a short break, we'll be back with lots more.
There's the Alex McFarlane theme song. I love it. So, Alex, a uh, listener just joined in with something you just said. She, uh, he or she said, I echo that. Thank you so much. I don't think we realize how much of a blessing faith radio actually is. It's like having free words of gold every day. Mm. Wow. Yeah. What, what a lovely sentiment. Yeah, no well, kidding. Thank you for sharing that. No it, kidding. It, it's true. It's yeah. true. So, Alex, as our country has this this uh, view of death, which is a horrible thing, it's an enemy, um, but more important than, than death, the physical death, is the spiritual death of somebody. And when yeah. you look at these death numbers, what I go to is this person on their... Uh, on the precipice of eternity and them not knowing Christ. That's, that's where I go. There's, there's where the heartbreak is because the, you know, the ratio of birth to death is one to one. So we're all going to do it. And what's more important is let's get the obsession off the physical death and onto the reality of your eternal destination. Yeah. Well, you know, the word of God says um, in Hebrews nine twenty seven uh, that every person has a day they're going to die, and God knows when it is. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. And so, you know, we, we often think in terms of plans, you know, when I graduate high school, I plan to go to college. When I get my degree, I plan to get a job. I'm going to get married. I want to do this. We're always setting these life goals, and uh, sometimes we make it, sometimes we don't. But the the thing that the wisest, Bill, as you know, the, the most vital thing anybody would ever do, the wisest thing that you'll ever plan for is after this life. I mean, you know, uh, life after death, eternity, not only is it something that all cultures talk about, all people know about. I mean, the poets, the songwriters, the painters, the authors have written about the soul and eternity um, science has documented near-death experiences. By the way, let, let me share this, Bill. May of last year, so exactly a year ago, I was in a palliative care hospital to speak in Texas. I was down there doing a speaking tour, and there was a gentleman that was over several hospitals, and he took me to a hospital that, it, you know, end-of-life issues and people that are dying. And he said, look, um, there are 50-some doctors at this hospital and dozens of nurses uh, could you just give them a little inspirational message? So I, I said, sure. So we stopped at this particular hospital, and um, I shared some things. And some of the people were Christians. Many weren't. And I asked these doctors, some of the best physicians in Texas and nurses, I said, palliative care, end-of-life care, how many of you have ever seen things in the context of dealing with dying patients and watching people expire, you know, how many of you have seen or experienced things in this hospital that make you believe in an afterlife? Mm. Bill, guess how, guess how many hands went up? 100%. I was about to say, I, I would bet all of them. And, and look, folks, these, this was not, you know, a little lemonade and cookies vacation Bible school. These are, <laughs> these are scientists. These are medical professionals. And, and we got into this conversation and several doctors were saying, look, I'm not particularly religious, but I've seen people that um, 
They, they saw loved ones. They saw angels. They, they said Jesus was in the room. And a number of nurses and doctors were explained. They said a patient would say, uh, Jesus has told me that he's coming for me tomorrow afternoon at 3. And precisely at that moment, the next day, they would die. And that there were things that um, people in the other end of the hospital that could not have known somebody passed would say, the, the, the lady that I was praying for, she passed away, didn't she? Because God told me in a dream, she's in heaven now. And so it was really amazing. Frankly, it was very inspiring how many of these doctors and nurses talked about things that were beyond any natural explanation. And folks, my point being, there is a supernatural realm. Every person has a soul Really, every person is a soul, and you have a body. All of that to say this, God wants people to be ready, and you can be ready. Bill, one of my favorite verses is 1 John 5.13, and this is in the New Testament near the end of the New Testament, right prior to the book of Revelation, 1 John. And after sharing the gospel, the Son of God paid for our sins. We turn and believe in faith. But here's what 1 John 5.13 says. These things were written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. And the word know there, K-N-O-W, is is a word for certainty. You you can be sure. And so I would just say to everyone hearing this right now, uh, we're all going to die. We know that. But we can be sure. We can have that comfort that we belong to Christ, the Savior. And we do that by putting our faith in him. And to anyone who may wonder, gee, am I ready? Do I really have the Lord in my life? Call on Jesus. He He is as close by as a prayer. And like that verse said, you can know. And you'll you'll know by having given your heart to him in faith. Mm, beautiful. I had Rob, uh, Rob Morgan on yesterday, Pastor Rob Morgan. I don't know if you know Rob or not. Uh, I know the name, the not Red, personally. Yeah, The Red Sea Rules is one of his books. Yes. And he cared, fact, I've got that book. It's a great book. He cared for his uh, wife who had MS for five years. I pretty much just invested the last, you know, five years of her life. And she uh, died just um, in November. And I mm. was talking to him about it yesterday. And, you know, just the way God orchestrates little moments, he said, she died on 11-11 at 11-11. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Wow. And he said, so I went and looked up John eleven eleven, and it says, after he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Yeah, that's a good little story. Hey, hey let, let me share this. Uh, you know, traveling a lot uh, up until, you know, seven or eight weeks ago, I was on the road pretty nonstop. Uh, 50 states, oh my goodness, uh, you know, I've been all over. 2,200 churches, a couple of hundred universities. I I love to travel and speak. Well, Bill, I've I've come across a lot of cemeteries. And sometimes I would, you know, walk through cemeteries. I've been in, you know, in the upper Northeast, like in Pennsylvania and Kentucky and Ohio, um, Connecticut, lots of cemeteries, many of which go back to colonial times. And if anybody ever says, well, you know, this country, we, we never were a Christian country. Here, here's something I began to notice in traveling around America. Um, 
if you look at the epitaphs on tombstones, really up until the 1970s, um, all of 95% of all the tombstones, if you, if you look at tombstones from the 16, 17, 1800s, they either have 90% of them have some sort of Bible verse or Christian reference. Mm. Once in a blue moon, you'll, you'll see a, a tombstone with nothing but a name and a date. Um, once in, in a while, you'll see a tombstone with the Star of David. But uh, of tombstones that are, say, pre-1900, nearly 100% have some sort of Bible verse or Christian reference. Now, I'm going to say about 1900 to the 1950s or 60s, three-fourths of tombstones, you know, have some sort of Bible verse or Christian reference. But you know, the funny thing, um, if you look at, and I mean, believe me, I've walked to a lot of graveyards. In fact, last Saturday, I was at a, a church cemetery that goes back 275 years, and I was looking at epitaphs on some of the tombstones. My point being, you know, the vast majority of tombstones that have any sort of inscription beyond the, the name and the date, it's usually a Bible verse or some sort of Christian-oriented reference, you know. Uh, and that that proves that we really were an overwhelmingly Christocentric country. Now, in the last 25, 30 years, that's been eroded to a large degree. But um, talking about God and and church and the presence of Christianity in our culture, um, people today assume it's come kind of an anomaly or something. But for the first, you know, 225 years of our country, that that was our default position, God and Christ. And I just pray that we'll recover that because I think, a, like de Tocqueville said in 1813, a, a huge part of our greatness was our godliness, and and we lose that at our peril. That's an interesting observation, Alex. I've you know I I do think that there's been less and less of uh, scripture verses being put on tombstones. Um, yeah, so this is a, a real uh, a real eye opener for sure. Well, well, um, hey, if I could, um, our, our website. Well, I mean, I, my Facebook page yeah. is Rev Alex McFarlane, R-E-V. I, I had a, just an Alex McFarland Facebook page, but when you hit 5,000 friends, they won't let you have any more. So we started a public figure page, and now we've got about half a million followers. And Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern, I do a live webcast. And we did one this morning on the subject of gratitude. And I share an inspirational thought or an apologetics thought or something, Christian worldview. And then we take live questions. And if I can uh, be so bold to please promote myself, plugging yeah. myself at Facebook, if, if you would, your wonderful faith listeners, yeah. uh, like us, look at some of the videos, share them if you can, or subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is Truth for a New Generation, Truth F-O-R. But um, we've had a lot of lot of action on it, and people have said, "Please do more apologetics for kids." So we're going to do things for children. But um, yeah, check okay. us out on Facebook we if will you indeed. would. Uh, Rev. Alex McFarland. Yeah, because if you don't promote yourself, I will. Dr. Alex McFarland has been my guest. We'll uh, take a short break and be back with Dr. Ann Bradley.
always happy to be talking to Dr. Ann Bradley whenever I can. She is the uh, uh, vice president for the economic initiatives at the Institute for Faith, Work, Works, and Economics. You know, I had to recall that from my brain because I didn't read it, and I thought I did pretty good. And welcome back to the show. <laughs> hey, Bill. Nice <laughs> to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, you know, every time I open up the newspaper, of course, I go, uh-oh, that looks like it's going to be trouble uh-huh. when it comes to economics. As I look at the country and I'm thinking they're talking about 22 million people filing for unemployment, I go, well, of course, they, there would be. We shut the country down. Yes. Why do we act like that's a surprise? Yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, I've been talking a lot about this with my students as we wind down the end of the semester. It's kind of interesting. All of, no matter what class I'm teaching, we, COVID always comes up as how how are we going to deal with this and what are the economics? But I, I really do think that there is we all as a society have unrealistic expectations about what our government can do for us. And you've probably noticed that in the theme of our talks going back years now. Um, But it's a really important insight of economics is, you know, there's different spheres of society. There's um, markets where individuals act, and there's civil society and charities where individuals act, and there's government where individuals act. So we're always dealing with people, but the institutions are different. And so the behavior is different. And I, I think Unemployment numbers like this are surprising for a couple of reasons. One, it just has happened so fast. So every time I turn on my computer, I have to look at these numbers because they move quickly. And I think that's something that people are not used to. So that's part of it. But I think the other part is that um, we look at these numbers and we're shocked and we have unrealistic expectations, perhaps, about how to fix the problem Mm -hmm. and about how we got there. So real thoughtfulness uh, is in order here in terms of what we're supposed to do to get out of this mess. In fact, I looked at the numbers today and it's up to 26.5 million filing for unemployment and um, labor economists actually believe that's an underestimate. And the reason they believe it's an underestimate is because in many states filing for unemployment has been very difficult. Systems are shutting down and they're having lots of problems with the, just the online way to do this. And so it seems that you'll, we should expect more before you know we get over the hump. Um, we're expecting 14% unemployment in the second oh. quarter, 16% in the third. So you know the, the train is still rolling really fast, and I think we need to be careful about how we approach the solution. And I know economists, uh, not as smart as you, forecasted a 3.9% decrease in the GDP, and now it's looking like it's more like uh, 4.8, uh, sinking yeah. to 4.8 in the, GT- in the uh, GDP. Explain uh, that to our listeners who may not understand the dynamics of GDP, how that's, oh. how that's all calculated. Of course. Uh, so GDP is something, you know, it's kind of like a nerdy economist um, jargon word, right? But um, I do think it applies to our daily lives. And, and it's one way that economists measure output. And the reason that we want to measure output in a society is because it helps us understand what people can afford. So it's a benchmark for income. So gross domestic product is the final goods and services produced in a country in a year. And so, as Adam Smith really famously said, the sole purpose of production is consumption. Manufacturers and entrepreneurs 
their sole reason for producing things is because they believe people want to buy them. If they didn't believe that, they wouldn't make them. So output is a measure of the robustness of wealth and income and um, it's, it's one measure that we use. It's certainly not perfect, but it's what we use. So GDP being down by 4.8% in the first quarter, when, by the way, in February, nobody would have expected this. So it's really not even a full quarter that this is happening. It's half of a quarter mm-hmm. um, is, is so fast and so massive. And to give you a sense of the flip side, when we're looking at economic growth in a country like the United States that has a lot of stability, it's a highly developed economy, you know, we get 2 to 3% GDP growth a year. Well, I, I believe last year, one quarter, we had 4% growth. And that was something that people became ecstatic about. So only underdeveloped countries, when they start gaining economic growth, you see these like 10 or 9% GDP growth rates per year. That's once you're a highly developed country, it's very difficult to get that type of GDP growth. So to wipe out mm. 4.8% in a quarter... It's a lot. It's a big hit. And it's a signal of what? Production has gone down. And part of it is because, or most of it is because we are locked in our homes. And so we're not buying and people aren't working. And so that that funnels itself right into those GDP numbers. All right. So I always learn so much when I have you on. So when the government says we're going to pump $2 trillion in stimulus money to keep the economy propped up, what does an economist think when you hear that? Well, that's such a loaded question, Bill, because it depends on which economist you're talking okay. to. But <laughs> All right. if you're talking to me... Either you respond um, or you put know, on Ann Bradley. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, so, you know, th- this is a complicated one because it's not a typical stimulus bill in the sense that we're dealing with a crisis. And I think that let's give a lot of people who are organizing this Um, stimulus bill, the benefit of the doubt, that they want to help people who are unemployed, they want to help small businesses, they want to help household individuals pay, you know, you got to pay your rent. Mm -hmm. Um, You have to put gas in your car, maybe not as much as you did before. You have to still put food on the table, et cetera. So I think that the the purpose was to try to to help people um, who are very vulnerable right now. Um, Of that Two trillion, one point eight trillion went to individuals and businesses. But here's the problem: it didn't all go to the businesses that were supposed to be getting it. Mm. And so I think you know we've heard about some of this in the news. Um, small businesses were supposed to get um, these loans to help them stay afloat. And when we say small businesses here, we're meaning businesses with less than 500 employees. And the reason we would want to help them is because a small business does not have the same access to the capital market, right, to get a short-term loan that's going to keep them afloat, whereas a large business has more opportunity. But what we're seeing is, unfortunately, this process um, was outsourced to banks, and it was not didn't really have proper oversight. So you've probably heard all these stories, but large businesses like Shake Shack, which has 8,000 employees, got a loan, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. You've um, sure heard that Harvard mm-hmm. got $8.6 million dollars. Harvard has a $40.9 billion endowment. It is the richest college in the country. So the funds did not go in every, you know, in every way to the people that were supposed to get the money. And I think that's just the problem here. It's the money. It's an expensive bill. But you could see an argument that if this was going to really help small businesses and individuals pay their rent, 
then maybe you could make a case for it, although it's expensive. And the question is, how are we going to pay for this in the long run? Right. But that is, in fact, not, not what happened. And so some people got $1,200 checks. But the problem is, the longer we remain in a recession and the longer we remain in lockdown, that $1,200 only goes so far. I mean, for most people, that will pay their rent for one month. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, the question is, how do we continue to help them? So these are real issues, and I think there's mismanagement, misallocation here. This is not a surprise if you follow um, the way this tends to work in big bureaucracies. These mistakes and mishandlings are are common. They're they're a symptom, really, of bureaucracies. So I think we need to be careful going forward about how we handle this in the future. All right. Let's try to be as optimistic as possible. Let's look at this post-pandemic uh, recovery. And do you anticipate it's going to be um, long and painful, or do you think there's going to be a chance that it could have a little bounce back? I've heard uh, some officials from Washington say that there could be a nice, robust uh, fourth quarter. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think part of the answer depends on how long um, – states maintain shelter in place Mm -hmm. type of orders. So the longer that goes on, uh, and I'm not saying none of it is warranted, but I'm just saying, you know, here's the consequences of doing that. The economic consequences of staying in your home, not going for some people being unemployed and for many people not um, being able to spend money. So if when you think about, you know, your kids aren't playing soccer anymore, they're not taking piano lessons, they're not going to daycare, all of these types of things, right? I think the longer it goes on, the more vulnerable the smaller businesses are to to shut down entirely. So that's the bad. That would be the bad news if this kept on too long, and you have a lot of these small businesses that just have to go bankrupt, and mm-hmm. they, you know, they lose everything. Then I think the recovery will be longer. However, I think the good news, and I think there is some reason for optimism. You're already seeing some states open up. So Tennessee has started their opening up process. Georgia, Florida, there are others. So I think to phase in um, a reopening process that's careful and that's cautious, so we have to maintain social distancing and proper hygiene and we need to wear masks and all these types of things, I think then you're going to get a faster recovery than you otherwise would. I think the thing for people to keep in mind, what's different about this economic crisis is it's the result of a pandemic versus if you think about the 2008 financial crisis, that was the result of a structural problem in the economy. So the housing market had been, you know, had all these problems for many years. That's what we call a structural problem. And so the recession and the bailouts and all this kind of thing, that was the working out of the problem. This is different. And so the good news about that is that there was not a structural problem with the economy prior to now. Like I said, in the first half of the first quarter of 2020, the economy was doing very well. So there's no reason to assume that we can't get those get back to the previous state of affairs. I think it will take a little time. But as long as businesses don't en masse go bankrupt, I think you're going to see people return to normal life. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing that I'll, I'll add to that, if I can. Um, you're already seeing people do, you know, what do people need right now? Everybody wants a haircut so badly, right? Because this is the kind of thing that it's not very easy to give yourself a haircut. And so those types of services, once they're open, I think people are going to go do it. Um, In Tennessee today, I believe they reopened restaurants. 
50% capacity. You know, you have to have disposable menus and servers have to wear masks. So the, the way we engage in normal life is going to be really different for mm-hmm. a while. But what you're seeing is that people are, in fact, going out to eat. They're ready. So the people that want to take the risks are going to do it. And I think slowly everybody will get back out there. So I do think that we can see a recovery that doesn't take years. Okay. Dr. Ann Bradley is my guest. We will take a little break. We will, when we come back, we'll have lots more with uh, Ann. Glad to have Dr. Ann Bradley as my guest. She's Vice President of Economic Initiatives at the Institute for Faith, Works, and Economics. Faith, Work, and Economics. I'm going to get that right one of these years. Um, <laughs> so, Ann, right before we went to uh, break, we were just talking about the recover, uh, the recovery of the economy. And, I, you know, just help me with understanding. Uh, do you need two successive quarters that are negative to define what's called a recession? How does that work? And then what... What defines a depression? Right. So this is really important because I think that you are seeing in the news people compare this to the Great Depression. And, of course, you know, some of that you can understand in the sense that um, it's catastrophic and it's and it's for us, it's come on very fast. And the unemployment rate that we were talking about earlier, of course, is, you know, mimicking um, unemployment levels, the worst unemployment levels we've seen in history. So, you know, I think that this is going to be more like a recession. And for a recession, you need, you need a, you know, a few months of um, decline, depressed uh, GDP growth and sustained unemployment. So I don't know if you um, remember this term that kind of became important in the Carter administration, but it was called the misery index, right? Yes, I do remember Um, that. So we don't want to use words like that. It's so terrible, right? Because, you know, we're miserable. We don't want to talk about it. But we don't need to call it that. No. But I mean, this is when we're measuring unemployment, rise in prices, and the persistence of those things. And so you know, again, I don't think this has to be a depression at all. Um, it will all depend on how quickly people can go back to work. And here's where I'd also like to add that, you know, we always, you and I, I feel like what we're always talking about is human creativity and human ingenuity. And that is what God has made us to do. Mm-hmm. And he did that for a purpose. And that's what makes economies robust. And I think that what you're seeing is, at least what I'm seeing where I live, is a lot of adaptability. Very quickly, you saw that restaurants don't want to go out of business, of right, course. Right. So what did they did? They adapted. So my husband's in the restaurant business, and now you know they do everything as delivery or to-go. So they had to reorient how they staffed. They had to reorient how they ordered. 
they had to, you know, start buying lots of to-go containers that they didn't do before. So from a business, you know, kind of structural perspective, everything they do now is different, but they adapted because they want to survive. And so I think that that's what we need to see, even in the time when we're still locked down. If you don't want to get into a deep recession, which goes into a depression, we need to see economic vibrancy where entrepreneurs are adapting. Um, I know somebody who owns a very small consignment store, and she now just posts all the pictures of her used clothes online, and then she delivers them to your house. Because otherwise, she'd have to shut her doors, and it's a new small business. So that's what we need to avoid prolonged recessions and depressions. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you'd be open to discussing how the stock market uh, feathers into all of this. I mean, it's down about 15% from its all-time high. But a 15% drop happens even in good times every five years or so. Sure. Um, you know, here's the other thing where it's, it, it's a little bit subjective and whimsical in the sense that stock markets very much respond to how people feel okay. and what people expect. So I think if people remain hopeful about the future, and there's a lot of reasons to be hopeful And I think that's the good news. You know, when you hear so much bad news right now, we need to be focused on the longer run. Um, What I'm seeing in terms of what's happening in the medical community is really astounding. I mean, we're rushing to make um, testing uh, widely available. We're rushing to make a vaccine. We're rushing to test drugs and get clinical trials started so we can, when people continue to get sick, because remember, the point of flattening the curve was to... Um, protect hospital capacity. We Mm -hmm. know that the disease isn't just going to go away because we're back to eating in restaurants. And so these things, these innovations um, are of primary importance. And I actually think that's why you're seeing the stock market start to come back a little bit because you're seeing all these reports day in and day out of how new tests are becoming available, new drugs are being tested in ways that we didn't think they could be before. You know, ideas are out there and people are testing those ideas and trying to bring them to the marketplace. So I think the stock market is, if you track it over time, you really see that the dip comes when people just, you know, nobody knows what's going on. People don't know if there's a way out of it. We're immediately under lockdown. Now you're starting to see these reports of vaccines and all these types of things. And what's happening? People get more optimistic about the future. I think this is also why the the White House unveiling its three-phase program, um, you know, this is what it looks like to get back. Governors making decisions about their states. Some are, you know, kind of slowly emerging from the darkness. I think this gives people hope into the future. So I think, you know, like you said, it's not down as far as it was at its lowest, which I think was a 30 percent loss um, at the at the low point. So I think this is a good sign, but I think we need to be cautiously optimistic about the future, right? We still are going to, in terms of our personal behavior, we're going to have to behave a lot differently than we did before, even when we, quote, unquote, can leave our house. Mm-hmm. So as long as we do that, I think we can continue the optimism. Yeah. And as both an economist and a Christian, tell me what your perspective is on this idea of free money, where where I know there's been some mm-hmm. politicians saying, let's just pay every American $2,000 a month for the duration of this crisis and maybe a year after that. What do you think about this idea? I understand why a politician would say that, especially now. I mean, I just think we should give them the benefit of the doubt. It's maybe not always warranted, but, you know, just say that, you know, they want to help the most vulnerable. I think this is a real problem because I don't 
see how we finance that. Right. Um, right now, we have a fiscal crisis looming before Corona, which is that we have unfunded liabilities, Social Security, Medicare, that we do not have the ability to pay for, and the money is empty. Um, you know, the, the the coffers are empty, and so that's a fiscal problem that has to be remedied somehow. Adding this on top of it does not seem to me to be pragmatic in the sense that we cannot afford it. That that doesn't resolve the problem that it's trying to solve, though, right? Which is that there are people, again, thinking of my husband who's in the restaurant industry, there are dishwashers and line cooks who have worked for that company for years. And, you know, they've been told, sorry, we don't have hours for you right now. Mm -hmm. So your heart breaks for people in that situation who have families to feed. So there is, there's a real call to action here. We have to do something to help them. I am not sure starting at the federal level is always the right way we should start. And I do think Bill, you and I have had those conversations now for years on this, uh, on this platform, which is, you know, the church can't do everything, but the church can do something. Local communities can't do everything, but they can do something. Again, even the market can't do everything, but they can do something. And so I think the combination between the federal government maybe doing limited things that it can do, but also allowing these other sectors of society to step up and help. I think that's how we're going to get through this. And if you look at early America, pandemics aside, Without this huge federal government, that's how we survived is communities, civil society helped one another and helped people in need. And I think we have to go back to those roots because I'm not sure how we could make a claim that we can financially give, you know, whatever number of people. Let's just say you're talking about the bottom quintile of the income distribution, $2,000 a month for two years or even a year. It's just not financially possible. Mm hmm. So, Anne, with your uh, husband in the restaurant business, has there been a couple of sleepless nights? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yes. And, you know, I'm not in the service industry, but sleepless nights for me, too. Um, so, yeah, we've had a lot of nights where, you know, he thinks about how how can he help his employees who, who don't have the money that they had before? How can you be safe handling food? You know, all sorts of things, I think, have changed for him, a lot, as you know, a lot of what I do is, is uh, do a lot of public speaking on mm-hmm. campuses. You know, I probably won't be doing that for a long time. I just don't know right now how you'd get 100 people in an auditorium. Mm-hmm. Um, so my future will change as well. And, you know, for us thinking about our family, how are we going to get through this? What are we going to do? And, you know, you and I were talking before the show. You just have to take one day at a time and you have to trust God. And that's certainly not easy. There's nothing easy about it, but it's it's interesting. I was talking to my son who's in fourth grade, and I've, of course, now become his basically homeschool teacher, too, <laughs> so adding that on to everything. And, you know, he was just frustrated that he feels like, you know, he should know the answers faster than he does know them. And I said, look, this is all very hard, and we talked about Job, and we talked about the promise of trials, that as a believer we know that we are going to face trials But then in our trials, this is our opportunity. God is crying out to us. And I really think we should take heart of that right now. And as Christians, we are the hope. We we have the hope of the world. And so the world needs hope right now. The world needs hope for the future, 
optimism, love, compassion, and we are poised to provide it to the world. And that has to start in our homes. So, yeah, we get down about it in our house and we worry, but I think we just feel like every day has to be a new day where we restart. We hit that restart button, get a cup of coffee, and let's do this. Yeah. Well, and that's gr- all we can do. Yeah, and it's a great word of encouragement. So thank you so much for coming on and doing the show. I always look forward to our time together. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much, Dr. Ann. Bradley has been my guest. She is the Vice President of Economic Initiatives at the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. You can head over to their website, which is tifwe.org. Thank you so much for listening and being with us today. Um, Just I love you, and I, I love that you support and listen to Faith Radio. Thanks so much to all of my guests. That wraps up our show for the week. It's time to ring the bell. Have a great weekend. Good night, and God bless. I'll see you Monday. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.